All right. Well, welcome into the two o'clock hour. It is your your old pal Chris Alberta filling in for Chris Renwick in the two o'clock hour. This is a new territory for me. The two o'clock. It feels a little bit late. I'd like to think that I'm on my game, but I guess we'll find out. We got Rieger and Danielle and the whole crew back there. Just got off the horn with Paul W. It was fun to hear his voice. It's been a minute. He's been traveling. I did fill in for him a couple of weeks ago, and I tell you. I've made this analogy now twice today. It's a little bit like Groundhog Day. We we continue to see the same top stories and headlines floating across the board. We have Israel, we have the UAW, we have the GOP and absolute tatters. And unfortunately, the one thing that gives some people in Michigan, myself included, respite is that that glorious fall afternoon on a Sunday where you get the nachos and the dip and you get a cold beer or whatever your affinity for snacking is, and you sit down to watch our Detroit Lions, who suddenly have been thrust into a national conversation about how fabulous and impenetrable and wonderful and and just a force they have become. And yesterday was about as big a letdown as you can have as a Lions fan. That's on the heels, by the way, of a Saturday, where if you're a Michigan State Spartan, you felt equal to this. But as they say... Every crisis presents some kind of opportunity, and unfortunately, we're seeing that across the globe. Rieger, did you watch the game yesterday? I did. I watched the game intently yesterday. Now, I know you're not the biggest fan. Your heart lies elsewhere in the NFL. True. But you couldn't help as a as a bystander yesterday to watch what probably was going to be a loss anyway. I mean, if we're being realistic slash pragmatic you know, about our NFL dreams, that wasn't a game that they probably were going to win. You know, I got to tell you, um, this happens in the NFL where you will have one of these games where it'll be kind of a maybe take a look at yourself, kind of reset. And this was that game for the Lions, I feel. Um I didn't think they were good. I I I predicted they would lose. I did not think they were going to get yeah. beat that bad. That was something. I mean, I think the blessing in disguise may be, you know, a little bit of a pump on the brakes with all the crazy national conversations, and that all Correct. trickles down, right? Three weeks ago, they're saying right. these guys are contenders. They're well-built. They can last. They should be able to get into the playoffs and even win that first round. It went from that in two weeks to this is a Super Bowl contender. So if nothing else it hit the brakes a little bit, a little bit of humility. I think Campbell's the right guy for that kind of conversation in the locker room and say, hey, you guys are nothing yet. But that, isn't that what we want here? It's not a flash in the pan. We want a perennial contender that every year is built strongly, like the old Steelers were, like the Patriots were, like the, like the Cowboys have been for so long. What does it take to show up every year where you think you have a chance? That makes for good Sundays. And i got to tell you, the, those days are kind of gone with the, the way that the salary cap works now in the NFL, especially if you're a really good team, especially if you win a Super Bowl. Sure. A, lot of the te- a lot of your players leave the next year, and it has to do with they got their ring, now they're going to go for their money, and the NFL is built on parity. So it's really hard to... Maybe try to recreate the New England Patriot dynasty that went on for so yeah, many years. Yeah, that'd be boring anyway. You know, without so, without a little bit of hurt and a little bit of hope, there's not much know. to watch. Nobody wants to watch a movie where the right. where the good guy always wins. I mean, that would just be silly. Right. And and Michigan State Michigan game was, I mean, ridiculously in the opposite. No one actually thought that was going to be a game if they followed the the sport really at the collegiate level at all. It was a massacre. Everyone knew that was going to happen. No surprises there. I'll tell you what was a surprise though. 
this is the weirdest segue over into Israel complications, but, you know, my daughters were bringing up to me. I had one daughter, Nora, who was home from Florida at college, and she was home for her fall break. So it was great to have her sitting next to me watching football. They start talking, my two older daughters, about how they were seeing some TikToks and tweets, you know, Twitter via at what, X, whatever they call it now, about how the women are going to be eligible for this draft when it comes around this time. Did you know that Biden had started a draft for the military? No, I did not know that, actually. That's because it's not true. Adding to the to the voracious buffet of entirely ridiculous misinformation that all of the people, let's call it sub-25 years old, are seeing via their social media catacombs that they live in. They are actually under the impression because of an AI, what they call a deep fake, you know, p- pasting together a bunch of different Biden words, that he was announcing that he's going to start drafting people for military again, and women would now be eligible. This was very concerning to them. More concerning to me, since it's totally untrue. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, I, I kind of feel like, and we've talked about this before, the age of social media and how it's changed the dynamic of how news is reported. Yeah. And, and now, let's add in AI to that, and that brings another layer of how news is being reported. You have to be very careful and you have to vet everything you read because a lot of it can be misconstrued the wrong way, kind of like that. Sure. And when you say vet, that's a that's a an odd thing to task a 20 or a 25 or even a 30-year-old with. I know a lot of adults who don't properly know how to vet something. If I read something that seems enormously compelling to me, where am I supposed to resource that from? Right, I am now over a thousand pages. I do this page counter thing. So since this new Israeli-Palestinian-Hamas conflict has started, I'm over a thousand pages of material and editorials and pieces written on it, read by me. That's what I do every single morning. All of our CP and all the allegories that I can find. I, I have such mixed feelings on a daily basis from everything I read, and I couldn't possibly vet them all. I wouldn't know where to start. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I guess I'm, I guess I'm um, specifically concentrated on social media well, stuff. Sure. In, the, in terms of the, you're right. In terms of the deep fake and the in the TikTok. And yeah. Was that as an average consumer of information, we we tend to be so very much stuck in our echo chambers. That we, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or YouTube, I'm a big YouTube user. Whether it's you know the market stuff, financial stuff, golf stuff, but they they, they form very powerful patterns, kind of reinstituting all the time what i want to see what i want to hear it's very very hard so, when you watch these college campuses get, give me your take on these on these kids on college campuses who are protesting at the top of their lungs in favor of palestine yeah i don't know if they necessarily have all the information they don't to be honest with you are you more of a i mean i know i know how i um you know, digest the news. I'm more of a USA Today guy than a Wall Street Journal or New York Times guy as far as reading stuff just because of the fact I want to see get the information and I want to move on to the next thing. You seem maybe you're more of the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, deep dive kind of kind of guy. I I can be. And I think there's certain sources and this is, you know, can get misconstrued pretty fast. I think there's some things that are unequivocally um, good in terms of quality. I don't think anyone would argue that the New York Times news pages 
are probably the best newsroom in the world, not the editorials, which they often get confused. I mean, if you're the average conservative type and then you read a Thomas Friedman article or something like that that comes from NYT, you you assume that that's the New York Times's opinion. The newsroom itself is one of the most one of the least redacted news sources in the history of mankind in the modern era. There's a whole lot of good stuff out there, but that also doesn't help shape an opinion. I think oftentimes we want to have our opinion shaped and and hear a take on it that we haven't heard before. That's what Paul W. does so well. That's what I try and do. But my opinions are in flux. They're always moving and shaking. Right. All right. Well, listen, after the break, let's get into something that I saw in a commercial yesterday about uh, income inequality and lies in the money atmosphere. Back in just a few. All right. Welcome back in. 218 on a beautiful Monday afternoon, and we're rolling along. Chris Alberta filling in for Chris Renwick. And as I teased a touch in that first segment, I want to get into, um, let's call it inaccurate information by politicians, of which there is plenty. But something caught my my eye yesterday, Rieger and Danielle, and I want you guys both to participate in this. I want to run a little social experiment because I find this whole thing fascinating. One of the I think one of the most egregious lies perpetuated by politicians, specifically, I think, Democrat politicians in the last 20 years, and how it's rearing its ugly head again and just won't go away. So yesterday, you guys, I'm watching the football game, and because we are on the Medicare annual enrollment period season, which is when 57 million Medicare beneficiaries in the United States who are 65 and older, they get to make all of their decisions, their elections for the oncoming year, let's say 2024. So they're tuned into this largely. And so President Biden has a fairly long-winded commercial, 90-second spot, that I see during the Lions game about how he has lowered, now additionally lowered, um, the Medicare prescription cost stuff associated with Part D. I won't get into all that. Down to $2,000 maximum per year. Now, all of that is fine. I don't care. I'm not going to get into the weeds on how Part D works or why that's appropriate or inappropriate. I could, and it would be fascinating, I think, but not today. What I did find really bothersome was the tagline at the end where it says, Biden, Mr. President Biden insists that billionaires should not be paying less tax than school teachers and firefighters or something to that effect. School teachers, I know. I don't forget what the other one was. Now, Rieger, Danielle, do you think it's true that billionaires pay less taxes than school teachers? No. No. Hmm. You know, this particular line of thought has come out a lot of different ways, and it was really started. I would say that the absolute birth, the origin of this sentiment in terms of how it is articulated to the American people started when Barack Obama, when he was running, said Warren Buffett has no business paying less in taxes than his secretary which also was egregiously untrue. But I would say that pay your fair share, rich people, and using that as a rally cry for all the average folks to say, you know what, finally, someone's fighting for me is the most egregious lie. And furthermore, the biggest sin that I think the GOP commits in the fiscal arena is not fighting back against that. So I want to pose to you a question, Danielle and Rieger. If the three of us, who are all in our 30s and 40s, are starving after this show. We decide to call one of the local pizza places here, and we say, you know what? You guys want to go in on some pies, and we order a couple pizzas, and it is 60 bucks, and there's three of us. How much do we each throw in? 20. 
Danielle, I know math's not your thing, <clears throat> but what do you think? No, I don't. We have to pay more than twenty because uh, because we have to tip too. Well, let's let's just pretend to make easy math okay, out of this. Fine. The tip is included. Don't be don't be a problem okay, over there. Fine. Come on, twenty. Okay, twenty bucks a piece. That sounds fair, right? Well, let's just say I'm in the financial arena and you guys are in broadcasting. And at this stage in our careers, I make more than you do on an annual basis. Why don't you guys get offended and say, yeah, but Chris, you make you make more than I do. And even though there's going to be, you know, there's going to be 18 slices of pizza and that's, you know, that's six slices a piece. You should have to put in more. Why don't you do that? That's, oh, it doesn't seem fair. That's interesting. Does We're here anybody in this do moment. That? Does anybody no. do that ever? No. When I go we to just, Meyer, we just, we just split it, and uh, and then people eat what they. Yeah, you have more eat. pride than that. People are going to eat what they're going to eat. Name me one other thing in this country at a at a retail level where you go and you go to purchase a product, and they say, "Well, okay, before I can give you the price on this, what's your income?" Mm. There isn't one. But with Medicare specifically, this is very, very different because for 30, 40, 50 years, people who are now receiving Medicare put money into that system. Every time they get paid, there's a FICA, there's a Social Security and Medicare deduction that comes out. Now, many people say that that's just me paying my taxes, but it's not. That's actually you funding an entitlement program. Now, whether you put $20 a week or $1,000 a week into that system is irrelevant. You get the same product at the end. So Warren Buffett, for example, has Medicare. He put a heck of a lot more in than Dave Rieger did working at WJR, right? Correct. But you get the same exact product out. Okay. Right? And now post-Obamacare, you pay more. So this is one of the most fantabulous, ridiculous, egregious, silly, sinful lies that's perpetrated on the American person. To think that there's a problem when there's not. Now, I broke this down for you in the, in the break before Paul W. and I came on because using... That, that quote that, that President Biden said, a school teacher versus a billionaire. Now, I'm not going to use a billionaire, but let's use a CEO salary of $700,000. That's a pretty good income, right? I could live on seven hundred grand. Yeah. Danielle, could you find a way to spend seven hundred? dollars uh, Yeah, I could figure it out. I've seen you on Amazon. It's quite the foray you take in there. <laughs> How about this? The average school teacher in the U.S. makes $60,000 if they're tenured over 10 years. Okay, 60000 Now, using 2023 tax brackets for an individual filer, and here's what I mean by that, not filing married, filing jointly, so on and so forth, because that would be more beneficial, just using 60,000 as the income, their total income tax bill is $5,460, total, 5460. That is 9.1% of what they make, their salary, 60,000. Is that fair so far? Okay. Okay, it's not like they're contributing nothing. They're contributing something, okay? Now, they might have additional itemization. They might tithe to the church. They might donate something and get a write-off. I'm just trying to stick with, with brass tacks here, normal stuff. The, the CEO's salary, $700,000, you know how much they pay? Take a guess. <sighs> Keep in mind, we have a progressive tax system, you guys, for income tax. The first X is taxed at 10%. The second amount is taxed at 12 and then 22 24 32 and then 37 Wow, so he's probably paying, they're probably paying like some 60000 Okay, let me just cut to the chase. A $700,000 salary results in a normal income tax of $215,133. of their income. Okay. And I will tell you, as a guy with a lot of clients who make that kind of money, 
not all of them by any stretch, but quite a few, they're, they face what's called the AMT, the alternative minimum tax. Most of them don't get to itemize things and take all kinds of ridiculous write-offs. They're not traveling to Barbados with a lineup of dancing girls and a, a special camel, they, and they write it all off, and it's an extra $80,000. tax. It doesn't work that way. So the CEO puts $215,000 into the federal income tax system. The school teacher puts 5460 And Who paid and they, more tax? And they, get, and they get the same benefit. The same benefit, which really, I mean, honestly, not to get down this road too deeply, but what do we get from the federal government? Besides the military and politicians that can't get their crap together, what um, do we get? A headache. So you get Social Security, you get... Um... You get the, you get Medi- Medicaid, Medicare, you get... Um... Well, that's interesting you just said it that way. Not to correct you, because I love you to pieces, but mm-hmm. I'm not getting Social Security. I'm well, that, giving well, them that, my well, money. Well, that's true, because you put in right. I mean, the same thing. But you still, I mean, you're right. It's they're not, orchestrating it's... it for me. Correct. Right? The cold, hard correct. fact of all these things is that basically 90% of all the income tax revenue that comes in in the United States that funds our military, funds the government, funds all their ridiculous pet projects with the EPA and overseas aid and foreign aid and everything, the defense fund, all of it mm-hmm. comes from the top 5% of earners. When the politicians, especially on the left, say things like, well, they need to pay their fair share. They pay everything in a relative sense. And this is not, by the way, a conversation that is supposed to in any way belittle or minimize the role of average folks in our country who work normal jobs making fifty, sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars who pay very, very little, if anything. The average sixty thousand dollar earner in the US after itemization and personal deduction pays basically zero in income tax. But they'll say on payday, Oh, my taxes are killing me. Why are your taxes killing you? Oh, they take so much out of my check. Yeah, for Social Security that you're going to get later in life, basically a pension. And Medicare, the single best health care system in the United States, which is the federal Medicare system. It is undoubtedly the, the worst of the worst of the worst. Now, when you get into billionaires, and this is where I think it gets fascinating. If I made a billion dollars, you know what the first thing I would do is? I would stop taking a salary. You could pay me $1, so I'm, I'm not considered a consultant or a, uh, a volunteer, and I won't take any salary because if I've made a billion dollars, all I have to do is occasionally sell some stock in my company, and I'll just pay a 15% capital gain. What, this, what I'm getting at with this whole thing, you guys, and I want to hear feedback from the callers on this, 800-859-0957. I am tired of, of being a man who's been on both sides of the income equation had a real struggle raising kids coming up, finally found my stride, have started to make a great living, work with people who make great livings, and I'm constantly being told that I don't pay enough. When I know the reality is I'm paying most of it. And I'm not paying a fraction of what the CEOs of all the company, when I go to Target, that guy, he's making money. I met him. Target CEO. It's a pretty incredible thing to think about. 800-859-0957. Are you paying your fair share? Be back in a few. Filling in, here's Chris Alberta. Okay, well, it's been a few weeks now. October 2nd, October 3rd, the news came out that McCarthy was booted by the GOP 
And we've been watching what I think any reasonable person would describe as a, a fairly embarrassing GOP circus going on ever since. Scalise was going to do it, then Jordan was going to do it. Uh, there was reasons, obviously, that didn't happen. Uh, on the line with us, Ryan Schmelz, Fox News correspondent, WJR contributor. Ryan, how goes what feels like the Groundhog Day of the GOP race to 217 for a new speaker right now? Well, it looks like a little bit of Groundhog Day, but I think what's very different from the other times we've talked about this is that we now have nine candidates for Speaker of the House that are all going to be uh, vying for their position. You know, we, we've got uh, all nine of them meeting for a candidate forum at 630 Eastern time later on tonight. Uh, they'll give, I believe, two minute speeches and then we'll answer about take about 90 minutes worth of questions uh, from their fellow Republicans. People to separate themselves. I, we're expecting a likely vote in conference tomorrow, uh, and then we'll likely maybe go to the floor on Tuesday. As well. I think it really just depends on what happens, because the thing you got to keep in mind is, you know, after Jim Jordan won, and most candidates do this, they do a, uh, a, a secret ballot on if you would vote for me on the House floor. And so Jordan did that. He had about 50 people who voted against him, yet he still went to the floor after he was able to flip a good amount of them. Uh, we just have to wait and see if whatever candidate comes out on top is able to secure those votes. Sure. And so it looked uh, early on, obviously, it looked as Scalise, who's kind of an establishment fundraising machine, would be a fairly easy get through. That didn't occur, obviously. Then Jordan, who's known to be, would you say, a firebrand and, and pretty partisan in a lot of his takes. I mean, he's not well liked across the aisle in some capacities. What makes this are the other nine now, would you call them slightly more cross aisle generic in terms of their likability on both sides? Is that a common denominator? Well, it really is hard to know. Everyone's got certainly something else that they bring to the table. You know, you have, uh, you know, Bergman, Congressman Bergman from the Michigan area, who is somebody who has been in office for a significant amount of time, longer than any one of the members here, and has pretty much been saying this is going to be a temporary uh, fit for him because he's not planning on being speaker past, you know, the end of his term. But then you have others like Mike Johnson, who, similar to Jim Jordan, has a significant amount of experience on the Judiciary Committee, but might not be as well known as Jordan on the national level, which could bode well in his favor uh, because, you know, Jim Jordan had some divisiveness that he brought to the table that was a concern. Or you can have Kevin Hearn, who's the chair of the RSC, the Republican Study Committee, which is the largest uh, caucus in all of Congress. And certainly that kind of plays into it where he's somebody who's, you know, Jordan's brand of politics, but might not have the, you know, personality that Jim Jordan has or the national profile that Jim Jordan has. So it might make him appealing to, you know, the conservative members of the party, but not in a divisive way that will alienate the moderates and make it harder for them to vote for him. So they all certainly have their issues as well as something they might bring to the table. And I think uh, also when we talk about Tom Emmer, the front runner. He certainly has probably the easiest path forward when it comes to winning the primary, but is he too establishment to be able to secure the nomination uh, on the floor? I think that's a question for him. Yeah, and Emmer obviously being the whip certainly would be the one you would think would be the front runner anyway, but he's one of the what two, right, that didn't or voted to certify the election kind of against Trump's wishes. Isn't that the yes, case? Correct, correct. And that's something that's been a major issue uh, for Emmer is that he might not, you know, the question is, if he were to get past the primary, would Trump, you know, tell others to not vote for him? And that could easily be something that would sink him if in fact, he made it to the floor. But I was just walking back through some 
old Matt Gates tapes, and he has said that he likes Emmer and he would support Emmer uh, as speaker if he were the nominee. So that's certainly a possibility that, you know, the, the party is on board with him. But if Trump launches a hell of a campaign against him, this could be a major concern if he gets to the floor. But I think it's a question of will Trump do that or will he have talks with Emmer, uh, as has been reported, and be able to work something out? Sure. And there is some I read last night, there was some form of unity pledge that at least most of them signed, right? Essentially saying, if if I'm not the guy, then I'll vote for whoever you say the guy should be. I'm not going to continue to resist. Yes. And we got some new information on that. As of right now, only one candidate, Gary Palmer from Alabama, has signed the has not signed the unity pledge. So Byron Donalds just got on board not too long ago. So it looks like almost every candidate's going to sign that unity pledge, except for and, you know Palmer could sign on to it at some point. But it looks like most of them are signing on, and that's going to be a big, big uh, part of getting everybody on board. Because, you know, what's going to be different this time around is, you know, while there were, you know, it was kind of split. You had a close race with Jim Jordan as well as Steve Scalise and a lot of people who ended up, you know, their candidate didn't win. We're going to be in a situation where there's going to be a lot of people whose candidate didn't win. So if they all can accept that and move on, that'll be key in getting 217. Sure. And the frustration's got to be mounting on both sides of the aisle, too. I know that the, the, the frenzy over Getz and his crew starting this this process was really taking a toll on everybody. But now you have a backup, a lot of, uh, of bills that now have backed up. I remember we talked about the National Defense Authorization Act that was still somewhat pending, even though that had passed at the first level. But with, with all the eyeballs now on Israel and what's going on, you know, in the NATO summit, so on and so forth, what is the most pressing thing or two that's now being held up on account of not having a speaker? I mean, what's the most overdue decision to be made? Well, avoiding a government shutdown is going to be the, the big thing, right? You know, we have a, a, a government shutdown that's looming on November 17th. They've got to get something together, whether it's a CR or they speed rush all these appropriations bills. They've got to do something to avoid that from happening. And they can't really make any progress as long as they're, they're here. And, and the CR plan is certainly something a lot of these candidates have been pitching and trying to campaign on. And then, you know, who has the best CR plan? What's the best way to, to fund the government short term but still get a conservative agenda through? That's kind of one question that's being answered by a lot of these candidates. And I think the other thing, too, is the president just put out his defense uh, supplemental package when it comes to Israel, as well as Ukraine. The national defense supplemental is the correct term for it. Uh, but, you know, it, it involves uh, Israel aid, Ukraine aid, uh, Gaza humanitarian aid, as well as a number of other issues. And that's something that's being debated in the Senate pretty aggressively. The House is going to have to take a look at it. But the reality is this thing can't pass or it can't be amended until there's a Speaker of the House if the legislation can move forward. Yeah, Ryan, you know, and that's one of the things that I wonder is, you know, relative, and a relative neophyte compared to someone like you, and I think a lot of the listeners might wonder this too, if we end up in a position where now in the next week this thing does get resolved, we do have a new Speaker, are they able to reorder the priority list of some of the things that are yet to pass? I mean, something that might have been really on the on the calendar for two weeks ago, are they able to put that to the forefront and kind of rearrange what needs to be done in order to meet certain deadlines? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, the, the, the Speaker of the House can pretty much set whatever schedule he wants, and then so can the majority leaders. So it's pretty much going to be up to whoever the new Speaker is and Steve Scalise, uh, who is currently the majority leader and is staying the majority leader, to decide what they're going to ultimately uh, prioritize here. And, and it just kind of is a wait-and-see approach. They've got to elect the Speaker first, and then they can go from there. Right. Well, yeah, what a tangled web they weave at a, at a very precarious time, not only in our history, but in history that's going on around the world. Ryan, 
Thanks for your input and your expertise, as always. We'll look forward to taking calls on this when we get back, 800-859-0957. Let us know your thoughts. Should they get their act together and get someone in this week? That'd be nice. All right, we'll be back in just a brief few minutes with some thoughts from Dave Rieger and the rest of the crew. Okay, look, if you were hanging around in that last segment, you heard me go a little a little spicy, as we call it around here, on the, on the taxation issues of the day. I was speaking really about yesterday an ad I saw. My, my main problem, by the way, is not that we as Americans don't all have a, a moral and ethical obligation to put money in the pot. I think we all do, whether we're making a 50000 or 500000 or $5 million. Everyone should be putting money in the pot since we all get basically an identical amount of service out of it. My main gripe is when politicians... And, and lobbyist groups are running all these ads and make it sound as if the rich people, the wealthy people, the CEOs, the billionaires are all gigantic tax cheats who pay nothing and find all kinds of loopholes and end up paying zero, less than your average secretary, i.e. the Warren Buffett quote, or a school teacher. And there's a whole lot of gray area in between. Dave, in Rochester, you don't entirely agree with me, do you? No, I, I 100% disagree with you. Uh, the people don't think they're tax cheats. The people think that the tax rules are in their favor. Uh, it didn't take ProPublica back a few years ago to go through a 2014-2018 uh, study to tell the people they pay top 25 billionaires pay 3.4% effective on true income, not AGI. From all these annual studies the right wing takes each year, it starts with AGI, and they say, well, the top 1%, they only make a, a 14 they pay a 26% tax rate, 42% of the tax. That's because they're starting with AGI. If you have investment income, you don't cash out. You borrow against it at a low rate, set it and forget it, and never pay, and don't ever pay income tax. You don't have to pay the 15% on it. Okay, the distribution changes all the time. Even the ProPublica never got their hands, never got their hands on those tax returns. Anyone could have taken the BEA table 2.6. Look at that in conjunction with these annual IRS releases. Look at the two of them in conjunction with the wealth changes by stratification put out each quarter by the Federal Reserve through uh, FRED database. Okay. Could have come so, up Dave, here, what I... What I hear you saying is the problem with the with the ultra ultra wealthy, the billionaire types, is they have so much investment income they manipulate the system using the rules. I think that you're right in the sense that they need to change the rules if everyone's going to to complain about that. But let me ask you one simple question before I move on, and I appreciate your feedback and your honesty. If a if, a, if an executive at General Motors or Ford or somewhere like that makes a half a million dollars, is is able to write down a hundred thousand dollars of that towards personal expense, itemization, so on and so forth. His adjusted income is now four hundred grand, right? Correct. Okay, so if he pays twenty two percent on that four hundred grand, he will spend eighty eight thousand dollars in income tax. If one of his colleagues makes a hundred thousand at a lesser station within the same company, and he can write his from a hundred down to ninety and pays twelve percent, he pays about eleven grand. Who paid more? Oh in your in your particular application it's the uh the executive so, obviously right. 
So, Dave, I think that's where, you know, arguments die with agreement. My, my disagreement is not that the use of the word billionaires throws it into a wacky category where you're right. So many of them have made so much stupendous money that they rely on stock warrants and long-term itemization to basically pay next to zero. But I can almost guarantee you that the lion's share of all those billionaires were at one time millionaires coming up through the ranks making hundreds of thousands, even even dozens of millions of dollars, and had to pay more income tax than most of us will ever pay in our lifetime. Elaine in Grand Blank, what's happening, Miss Elaine? Oh, hi. This is about Medicare. You made a, a statement that, you know, if you pay more into it, that you still get the same benefit. Well, not even that. If you retire and make any income, they charge you more for Medicare. Right. I paid a lot more for Medicare than somebody who never paid into the system. Yeah, you're 100% right. And this could lead us, Elaine, I'm so glad that you brought that up. I, I think tomorrow when I'm back, I'm going to dedicate a segment specifically to this because it's a sensitive topic. It's one that most people don't understand. Not only is our government so incredibly broke in terms of the entitlement benefit services, Medicare included, that the redistribution of wealth post-Obamacare was such that they made it so that not only did you pay more in your working years, but now you're getting penalized via what's called IRMA, I-R-M-M-A. So people who are making, you know, even decent pension plus investment income plus Social Security, they're paying two to three times as much as the average person for the same Medicare, right? It's confounding. Why are we doing that to people? And I really, I have a small pension and I get Social Security and I'm still working part time, but I'm single. So my tax bracket is always more because I don't have anything to deduct from anywhere. Sure. But I was astounded when I was getting like almost 400% more in my Medicare payment because I was making money. And mm-hmm. I was like, but I paid into this. Yeah. And it didn't matter. You're 100% right. It's a, it's a tangled web. And that's what I think the, the majority of our politicians have been very, very dishonest about is who's paying what. Actually, the same reason that somebody who has lower income, and I'm not talking poverty, I'm talking just lower income, they're getting benefits even sub-65, sub-Medicare. They're getting the same benefit packages for $200 a month from a a normal insurance company that I'm paying $1,300 a month for. So I'm offsetting the fact that they don't make as much money as I do. And to some degree, I realize that's the only way they could make it work, but it's awfully penalizing to a whole lot of us. And it's just not the right way to do things in a capitalist society. So I'm with you, Elaine. Thanks for the feedback. Doug in Sterling Heights. What's going on, Doug? Yeah, hi. I just have a question about, I should say a theory about the speaker tobacco going on here. Um, I think that they're doing it the right way. As you remember, Pelosi controlled everything for how many years? And if you didn't kiss her ring or something else, nothing Mm -hmm. got moved out of their committees. Right. So I think they're doing it the right. They're trying to find the right person for everybody. Yeah. You know, Doug, uh, Newt Gingrich had a column, uh, I think it was this morning or yesterday, where he suggested maybe this is what it's going to take, essentially saying, lock all those goofballs in a room. Don't let them leave. Give them five minute potty breaks. Bring them in lunch. And don't leave until they've gone through everybody that's willing to put their hand up and say, I'd like to throw my hat in that ring. Take a vote on it, find somebody, and move on. 
the reason that Pelosi, as much as she's despised by the, the, the right wingers of the world, was so effective well, she did an awfully good job of just running the show internally. She's very, very, very well liked in D.C. by people on both sides of the aisle. It's the people in the right wing media that hate her guts. And she said she's done an awful lot of things that make her really uh, hard to like, I think, is the only way to put it. But, yeah, you're right. We need a leader. So do it by committee. Thanks, Tom. Or uh, Doug, that's a great call. Tom in Windsor. What's going on, Tom? Well, they they make it. They try to make it sound like they uh, care for the little guy, the Democrats. You know, they're the rich, poor. You know, but but it, it's all about it's all about creating division because that's what they do. It's 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 rich against poor. It's black against white. It's gay against straight. It's trans against everybody. You know, but that's all they do. They they pick somebody and because they got nothing to run on, so it's all about creating division. So it's got it's got absolutely nothing to do with the money. It's just creating division between people. Right. Tom, that's a frustration that I wish you're, you're, you hit it in the nail on the head. This is what, for so many years, the Democrat Party has done, is pick on race, pick on income, and just try to get you in their corner. So thanks for the feedback. And listen, I can't be remiss in this. I want everyone to listen up. You need to be caller 9 at 1-800-859-0WJR-0957 to win a pair of tickets to see a performance of the Dr. Seuss show, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, the musical playing at the Fox Theater on November 8th through the 12th. Official rules are at WJR.com. Featuring the hit songs, You're a Mean One, Mr. Grinch, and Welcome Christmas to the Grinch discovers there's more to Christmas than he bargained for. This heartwarming holiday classic. Max the Dog narrates as, as the mean and scheming Grinch, whose heart is two sizes too small, decides to steal Christmas away from the Who's. An endlessly cheerful bunch bursting with holiday spirit. Tickets are available for purchase at 313presents.com and at Ticketmaster. Back in just a few minutes. Filling in, here's Chris Alberta. As we head into the second hour, thanks to Danielle and Dave Rieger for managing everything behind the glass there and, and helping me not look like a buffoon. We had some really good calls in that in that last segment, certainly about... Um, you know, taxes and inequality and the way that things are calculated and how the politicians frame the narrative. And Doug made a good point when he initially called in about uh, what he called AGI or the adjusted gross income, getting into a lot of that conversation gets so deep into the weeds because oftentimes what, what many listeners won't know, and you can't fault them for not knowing this because it's enormously complex, unless you're in the, the financial industry or a CPA or something, it's it's hard to to really dissect and delineate between these different tax brackets and what's adjusted and and what is net and how is gross calculated. But really what Dave's gripe is, is legitimate to a degree that using what's called AGI, the adjusted gross, which is my income minus anything the IRS lets me write off as a tax deduction, I'm paying tax on that amount. But when we get into the conversation about billionaires, and I only know a couple people who would be qualified as billionaires, which I'm lucky to, I suppose. They've been very wise in mentoring me, a couple of the ones that I've been able to spend any time with. Most of them had long, long careers, fabulous careers coming up through the ranks. One in particular started with basically nothing. And he got himself into a position where he'd, he'd amassed so much wealth that essentially he doesn't take an income from anybody. He sits on a couple of boards and occasionally he sells some stock and he takes in dividends and he probably only pays maybe 15 or 20% total on the money he brings in and he can afford to. He couldn't care less. 
But that's shockingly less than the 37%, for example, that a $1 million earner, which is still a phenomenal amount of money, would pay. But that $1 million earner, Dave Rieger, is going to pay more in one year than an entire school's worth of teachers, which does not mean their contributions should count for any less. But we should stop acting as if the $1 million earner isn't doing his or her fair share. That's insanity to me. Right. But and everybody's getting the same amount of benefit from the government, no matter how much you pay. Everybody's getting the same, pretty much the same as far as the as what the government offers. Yeah, and this is a very unpopular sentiment. I actually am um, I'm shy about bringing it up, but the reality is, the further you d- go down the socioeconomic totem pole, when you get into the borderline poverty level stuff, you know, twenty to thirty thousand dollars a year with a couple of children. Most of those folks don't don't pay any income tax. They may have, you know, deductions for Social Security and Medicare. But conversely, they're actually more likely as a demographic to rely on government services in the future. So oftentimes it's the people that are contributing most that get the least out of it, which is not to say that they're better or worse for it so much as that it's just a, a tangled web of misinformation. And there's been plenty of proposals, by the way, if your position on that is that there is too many thousands of pages of tax code that allow for ridiculous things. I mean, I'll I'll give you an example of one. You can pay your child, I think, who's more than six years old, you can pay them an administrative salary for helping around the office. So if I owned a business and I wanted my kid to come in and lick envelopes, okay, I could pay them like $6,700 or something for the year. I could write them a check. Really? Oh, I could open a bank account for them, write them a check, immediately take that check, deposit it back in my account and write that off. If I have four kids... I could, each, I could write them each a check for six or seven grand and then write off 30 grand because they came in for an hour to, to lick envelopes. What? Okay, That's nonsense. I would call that abuse. That is unethical abuse of the tax code. So for anybody out there who's thinking, yeah, but the tax code is set up in such a way there's so many loopholes that CPAs can help their clients find. Can I, can I just go I, back? I disagree. To, can I just go back to that real quick? Why, you want to lick envelopes in my office? I want to well, <laughs> I want to know how... how far did you have to dig into the tax code to find that loophole? I only know that that's the, the, the case because a friend of mine who owns a business mentioned that he had to run to the bank a couple of years ago, had to run to the bank by a certain time because if he didn't deposit a check in the name of one of his kids, it wasn't going to count for that year's deduction. I said, for what? Just for office help. I said, well, how, how often does little so-and-so come in and help at the office? He said, well, he's been in a few afternoons. It's kind of nice. He sees the environment and everyone, you know, gives him a lollipop and he licks envelopes and he shuffles some boxes around. And I just shook my head like, okay, I, I like the guy too, the guy I was talking to, but I, I wouldn't do that. I think that's abusive. But I think Doug's point is to right to a degree that if you don't like the code, that would be the case for changing the code. I mean, years ago when the Tax Foundation introduced the, the real flat tax proposal that had massive, by the way, bipartisan support, the idea is that everybody, everybody from $50,000 a year up to $10 million a year would pay 20% taxed flat total. No deductions, no itemization, nothing. So if you make 100 grand, you put 20 in the pot. If you put make 50 grand, you put 10 in the pot. If you make 10 million, you put 2 million in the pot. Everyone pays the same percentage. It's linear across the board and you basically do away with what is really nothing more than a 2,500 page manifesto of completely obscure write-offs. That's why audits happen. That's why a lot of pain and loathing happens when it comes to taxation. Some people know how to work the system. I'm sure you've seen the clip. We might be able to find the clip for a later segment today of when Hillary Clinton asked Donald Trump 
in the debates. Yeah, but isn't it true that you basically paid almost nothing in income tax and you own this giant corporation? He said, absolutely. And everyone was stunned. He said, and you know how I know that it's okay? Because all of your donors do it too. We all do it. That's the way the code's written. Unless I'm an idiot, I'm, I'm, I'm going to use the code to my advantage because it's legal. Right. Perhaps it shouldn't be. I don't know. What text message did we have come flying in in that segment? So we have a guy uh, from Port Sanilac, Don. He said, I'm a relatively high-income individual in a rural area, and I can't even tell my friends uh, how much I pay in taxes because they would never believe me. I believe him. He also says that uh, he owns a small business in that same rural area, and he could still not tell his friends how much they pay he pays in taxes because they would not believe him. And he would probably be embarrassed because oftentimes people making, you know, if you make four, five, six, seven hundred thousand dollars, which is not always representative, by the way, when you own a business, as I would know, you run the risk of losing everything. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of risk associated with entrepreneurship and, and with being in an executive position. You're going to pay a bunch. It's going to be basically a third of whatever you actually make. And then you run into a tough year. And your head's in the sand and you have no way, it feels like you might have no way out. And that's what happens to so many people during COVID. If you came out of COVID in 19, you had a good year in 19 and paid 30 to 35% of your income in an income tax. And then in 2020, everything you had saved up, you ended up pouring back into the business just to keep it alive. You're broke at the end of a 24 month cycle. That's a really hard thing, a hard pull to swallow. Tough conversation, too, because most people don't want to hear it, despite the fact that it's math. One more text. What do you got? Especially with the fact, one more thing, especially with the fact that uh, that it's your life, that, uh, you know, it's your business, it's your life. Yeah, it's everything. It's how the kids eat. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, that's that's awful. Look, after the break in a few minutes, we're going to get with Brianna Noble, auto and business reporter for the Detroit News. UAW now is up to basically 40,000 people who are currently on strike. Another 6,800 um, decided that they would go on strike this morning. Um, Mr. Fain has cards left to play, he says, and there's certainly some things we need to investigate about that. Back in just a brief few minutes with Brianna. Well, here we go again, back into UAW talk. Enough on Israel, enough for the moment on taxes, although the, the, the texts and the calls keep on flooding in, which I love. We're lucky enough to have um, Brianna Noble join us, the auto and business reporter from Detroit News. Brianna, how are you this morning, this afternoon, I'm rather? Doing, yeah, I'm doing well, Chris. Thanks for having me. Yeah, listen, this is a subject now that everyone's been covering all day, every day. When I was on, I had to do it almost every day. This situation, you would think at this point now, six weeks plus in, would be resolved, but it's it's taking a turn for the worse. Give us the latest. Yeah, so today the United Auto Workers uh, called out uh, more than 6,000 workers over at Sterling Heights Assembly Plant, which is a Stellantis plant that produces the Ram 1500 pickup truck. That's a huge moneymaker for the company. So this is definitely a major escalation in this strike and just underscores um, really the statements that UAW President Sean Fain discussed on Friday about um, the sort of class warfare that's being waged um, through these negotiations. Brianna, has, has did Sean Fain, and I did not see this Friday's uh, Facebook Live, 
Was there anything that he pointed to Estelantis specifically that was a sticking point beyond the, the kind of platitudish version of, you know, class warfare? It, what is the actual hump they're trying to get over? Is it a few specific bullets at this point? Yeah, based off the details that uh, Sean Fain shared on Friday regarding the uh, negotiations and the economics of the deal, he pointed to a number of things while Stellantis did move on things like increasing wage um, increase offer um, and bringing Mopar uh, parts distribution workers up to cost parity with production workers. Things that he said still aren't up to snuff is their cost of living adjustments offer. Um, They're still at four years timeline to get to the top wage, whereas Ford Motor Company latest offer is three years. Um, and then today on the picket line, UAW leaders, including UA Vice President Rich Boyer, emphasized issues like job security is continuing to be a sticking point. A big thing for Stellantis was its decision in February to idle the um, Jeep Cherokee plant in Belvedere, Illinois, and the union would really, really like to see a new vehicle at that plant. Wow. And a couple of weeks ago when I was interviewing somebody about this. Stellantis was the one that seemed to have made the most progress and had been the most transparent with Fain and his representatives. And they seem to be, uh, have a stranglehold on this as if they were going to come to a close before the other two. And now is there a new leader in the clubhouse in terms of being the closest of the big three to striking a deal and getting their people back to work? I mean, clearly we have some of the largest, uh, uh, most important plants now on strike at Stellantis and and Ford, you know, so the pressure is definitely on at them. Stellantis, honestly, in a statement today, uh, expressed, quote unquote, outrage over the um, move by the union, uh, given the discussions that they've had um, you know, over the weekend and last mm-hmm. week with their increased offer. Um, so, you know, the pressure is on. Tomorrow, we're going to hit 40 days of this strike. That's the length that General Motors workers were on strike back in 2019. Right. Um, and so, you know, the, the the company, the union's definitely putting as much pressure and leverage on, on the, those three companies as they can right now. So, Brianna, I know how close you've covered this. And, and naturally, as a person outside the big three, I don't even have family that work for the big three. I only know what I know from reading. And it's hard to, to pick up on what maybe notions of, you know, discontent within the UAW even. When I read a a paragraph that includes Sean saying the UAW still has quote unquote cards left to play, that that actually seems a little gamish to me. As if to say, listen, we're not done with you guys yet. We still have a couple things in our back pocket to make it even worse. Is has there been now feelings of even UAW people going, we're taking this too far. At what point, the tipping point could have been two weeks ago by by many accounts. How does that mood seem now? You know, there's definitely some frustration, especially from workers who, you know, have been on the picket line for more than four weeks now. Um, you know, and they're being paid $500 per week, just a fraction of what they would usually make while working. Um, there's definitely, you know, economics pressures for from there. Um but, you know, you still hear a lot from auto workers saying, hey, we believe in this union. We believe in these leaders that um, they elected and that, um, you know, they're looking to see the major gains from this contract. And, you know, UAW President Sean Fain did recognize uh, on Friday that the contracts currently on the table are record contracts, but they um, believe that there's more to be had from 
the automakers and they have stated that their goal is to be able to, you know, take a strong deal from these companies and actually take them to foreign automakers and EV makers like Tesla to organize those workers. Wow. Okay. Well, Brianna, we appreciate the update. This is a, an ongoing, ever evolving issue that doesn't seem to have any end in sight. And Dave, as we've discussed over the last few weeks, as I have filled in, I've listened to Paul's show a few times, Renwick show a few times. Obviously, I'm working throughout the day too. This, this is starting to distinctly feel like a situation where they are just going to, they as in the UAW, led by Mr. Fain, are going to continue to just squeeze and squeeze and squeeze until there's nothing left. I mean, if it was a record, they had record deals on the table four weeks ago. What are they looking for? A Guinness Book record? You know, I'm not sure, and I I worry that um, he's going to uh, he's playing this 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 game of chicken with uh, the big three, if you want to call it that. And uh, I hope he doesn't lose. Yeah, eight hundred eight five nine zero nine five seven is the number. If you have input, especially if you're on the on the union on the on the labor side of this equation, it would be good to hear from some of you. One thing that those of us not in the business don't seem to understand is how far can you can push a company, so to speak, and you say record profits should equal record contracts. Well, what happens when they have record losses? With so many people predicting, so many economists predicting that we see a recessionary cycle in the next half dozen years, if we go through another 08 where everybody made sacrifices, I hate when I hear that line, the UAW made so many sacrifices post 08. Yeah, they did. They all did. Because if I'm in a boat and it's sinking, and I say, hey, you know what? I'm the only one bailing water here. Why don't we both bail water and we, that we might not sink? They got the ship back afloat. But now the next time there's a flood, it might be just a boat that shatters into pieces. If you make those companies so thinly veiled with financial security, it could be enormously interesting. We only have a couple minutes left. Let's go out to Vince in Northville. Vince, what's happening with you and what are your thoughts on Sean Fain? Hey, thank you for taking my call. My personal opinion towards Sean Fain is I think he's skirting industrial sabotage, okay, and he's uh, what he's doing to the automakers. Look, I understand that the corporation guys are making what they're making, okay? That is never going to change. But what is what Sean Fain is doing right now is doing nothing but hurting you and me and every other individual that buys their product, okay? Mm -hmm. Because we, you know as well as I do that any agreement that they get financially is going to be added on top of the car price, sure. okay? Because the company is not going to take the hit and say, well, we're just going to give you all this money and we're going to keep prices the same and we're going to take the hit. Yeah, Vince, you got 100%. The legacy costs alone are half of what drives the car's price to what right. it is. This whole thing could be an absolute house of cards if they don't all get on the same page and knock it off. I'm, I'm with you. I'm shocked. We have time for one more. Adam in Dearborn, what's happening? Yeah, I've, I've been listening on and off for the last couple of weeks, but I've never heard anybody comment on uh, over the last, I don't know, I would say eight to ten years, they've been getting profit-sharing checks of eight to ten thousand dollars a year, sometimes six. Are they giving those up, or do they get to keep those also? That's a good question, Adam. I will I will look into that and have an answer for you tomorrow when I'm back uh, for the other Chris for one more day. There is a lot to be said about how that environment works. And when really, if we're linking, again, record profits to record contracts, if they're willing to go up together, they have to be willing to go down together. Nobody in this environment can operate entirely risk-free. 
So it, it, it is an ongoing saga that never seems to want to end. And I think that's I'll where... Tomorrow. What's that, Adam? I'll wait till tomorrow to hear about Yeah, that. bonus money. We have more, more calls and, and more texts coming in. After the break, we will revisit both of these subjects. The UAW, certainly, uh, the, the disparity in income and, and the tax, what I call the tax fib of the, of the millennium, in just a few minutes. 800-859-0957. Right back. Told you, I told you that it was going to be a light show on the board when we started talking about tax reform and class warfare and the haves versus the have-nots. Also, the UAW thing got everyone going. And I do not want to be rude to our buddy Tom in Roseville. He's been waiting on the line for a minute. Let's get to him, and then we'll follow up on the other things. Tom, what's going on? Oh, I'll make it very, very quick. I mean, you know, your last caller, I mean, at some point I kind of agree with him. Okay, I mean, he could be all right tearing it down. Okay, I look at him with that t- eat the rich shirt, and he should be standing next to EOC. But, I mean, okay, I've worked for both. I came from Teamster 372 for the newspapers, UFCW for Farmer Jacks, and I worked a lot of years for Federal Express, which is non-union. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I don't th- deny anybody the right to earn a decent living, but, I mean, there has to be a limit to it. These people that have companies, whether it be the auto industry or any other industry, they will find another way, whether it's through artificial intelligence, build them overseas, whatever whatever it might be. Sure. Automate. Okay, I mean, there has to be a limit. That's quite a generous offer that these auto companies have already offered them. They have already, I mean, off, they have gold-plated health care. The only thing that I could support them on is maybe the tier system. Well, Tom, Other than that, they're paid quite well for what they do. You're right. You bring up a very valuable point, and you're, I, I appreciate that particular piece of feedback because the key word there is limit. I have no horse in the race. I have a lot of clients who came from GM, Ford, and Chrysler, many of whom were on the salaried side. Some were on the union and hourly side. I can tell you that I know hourly people who made significantly more in terms of their wages and income than salary folks. They certainly have way better health care, and they always have. But there is a limit. This is one of the things that's bugged me about this process is if in the eyes of the American populace, the ones that are judging this from the exterior, you have to go as a Mary Barra, for example, and say, look, there is a limit to how much we can pay for general labor. It's not that they're not valuable. They are valuable. And she makes that point to the to such a degree that it almost sounds like a, like an overture, like a platitude that doesn't really matter. It matters. Every, everything matters, regardless of how menial the task may be. But at some point, you have to call it enough because it's not necessarily the kind of skilled labor that you're getting on the other side of, of the equation. Why did BMW and Audi and Volkswagen and these other companies make cars now in the U.S.? The, the largest percentage of them, of the car itself, is actually assembled here with many of the parts now being manufactured here. They're non-union and they're, they're succeeding wildly. In Michigan, we have a very odd gyroscope that we look through where we see so many domestic vehicles everywhere. In the rest of the country, that's not the case. There is Toyotas and BMWs and Audis and Volkswagens and so on and so forth, and in very equal ratio. By the way, you know, there was a report that came out a couple of weeks ago I thought was noteworthy. Sean Fain is a very, very, very smart man. He's also a $375,000 a year man. That's how, what he reports in income from his two consulting businesses, one with the UAW, one that's in a, kind of a side business to that. 
it is rather remarkable if you're going to act as though you embody the the everyman, the simple, humble worker who's just going to work with an axe on their back and smashing it against a rock until lunchtime, and then you have your ham sandwich, and then you go back and do it again. It would be nice if that was actually the case. He and our he, as in Sean Fain in our tax conversation, would be in the top fifteen percent of earners nationally. So he's fighting a battle on behalf of people that might not necessarily want to have that same battle to the degree that it's been fought now. There are tens of thousands of salary workers making less than Sean Fain. He's not fighting for them. How about Ken in Livonia, our pal Ken? What's going on, Ken? Well, I just want to ask the question, and this applies to your discussion. Mm -hmm. How much do you want to pay for a loaf of bread? Ultimately, it boils down to what can the customer afford to pay for an item? Mm -hmm. How much is a customer willing to pay for an item? And let us not forget, what's the purpose of a business? To make money for the stockholder. Right. And I think this is an item that the UAW seems to be uh, completely ignoring. Um, yeah. And I think that we need to uh, uh, focus on this point. Ken, if you're a GM stockholder, you haven't made new money in the better part of five years. You can go on your on your iPhone, let's say, and pull up your stock ticker index and look up GM. And GM in the five-year tab is essentially flat. The price is the same as it was five years ago. So when we talk about record profits, record profits for a company that's privately owned means that those those stockholders, private stockholders of that company, are all putting those that money in their pockets. Everything is a flow-through. That's what a corporation is. But in GM's case, Ford's case, Stellantis slash Chrysler's case, these are publicly owned companies. They're owned by you and me and Danielle and Dave Rieger. If they've been making record profits, where is that increase that is reflected in the stock? It's going to be even less if they can't survive. Dave, what tax did we have come in that we're uh, not paying attention to? So we got a uh, couple of text messages. It says, um, who other than the auto workers will be able to afford cars? They pay half of what the rest of us do for cars, and it is uh, we just can't afford $100,000 cars. It is remarkable, isn't it, that if you go look at a new Suburban, for example, if you're a family with a bunch of kids and you want to buy a Suburban or even one of the really high-line minivans now, you're looking at $70,000-plus price tags. Yeah. I saw an Escalade the other day with a very, very pretty truck, which is basically what it is, right? It's a truck with an enclosure. Right. $110,000. $110,000 is three and a half times as much money as my parents paid for their first house. Wow. What year was that that your parents paid that for their yeah, first house? I time? don't know. Don't make me look silly. I don't know. It was before I was born. So you <laughs> think, okay. I mean, you're talking early 1970s. I mean, yeah. if your ha their house was $30,000, $28,000, and they made a 15, 20% down payment, and here you go. Here's your first house on Bluebird Drive. Fast forward, people are driving a car with a butt massager, a GPS screen bigger than the one we used to watch Little House on the Prairie on, right? Yeah. Adaptive cruise control. So you can basically take your foot off the gas and it does all the work for you. The newer ones are now more autonomous, but I can't stand that idea, so I don't want to get into it. Right? Three rows of seats. You can fit everybody in your neighbor back there. Yeah. And it's going to depreciate by about 40% by the third year. You know what doesn't depreciate? Your house. Right. Right? It's really a wild conversation and well, i can't i'm not an expert in in car pricing i mean our, our our buddy paul is but if you think about what how did the prices ever get that high there's not that much there in parts and labor no 
the legacy costs, the pension that they don't have anymore. Well, the UAW has the pension, but the salary side does not have the pension. The healthcare benefits, that all matters. How much more does this stress out? That caller made a great point. There is no corporation on the planet if they're saddled with new additional costs that doesn't somehow or another find a way to put the majority of those new costs into the price of what they're selling. So you're telling me you don't want that new $300,000 street legal Mustang, 800 horsepower Mustang that they're coming out with? It's the GTD. No, but my buddy's company makes the wheels for that car. They're magnesium. Really? Yeah, pretty sweet. Magnesium is really cool because it's replacing what a lot of the old alloys did in the sense that it used to be a fire hazard back in the 60s and 70s. Race cars tried magnesium, but it was such a fire hazard. They couldn't stop the things from overheating because of, you know, the rotors and the brake pads creating frictional uh, heat and the mass would catch on fire. Well, now they figured that all out and, and magnesium wheels are so much lighter. It, it re- reduces the unsprung mass. So the car handles better. It drives better. It's got more power. It's pretty cool. Sounds cool. Get, talk about cars. Get me in a segue. I got to talk about lions with Steve Courtney here in a few minutes, don't I? Yes, you do. Coming up next. All right. See you in a few. Well, after all that tax talk, that UAW talk, that Israel talk, we get to close this hour out with a little bit of sports with our good buddy, my fellow my fellow golf nut, Steve Courtney, who knows a legion more about sports than I do, but I'm going to act like I'm on par with him. Steve, you okay with that? Yeah, Chris, uh, whatever you want to do, my friend. Uh, let me just say this. Uh, our conversation there, Chris, brought to you by the Performance Remodeling Sweepstakes. Performance Remodeling selected Parks, Missouri as the winner of their first annual $100,000 window of opportunity sweepstakes. Performance Remodeling says, hey, we're going to do it again. Log into windowsroofingsiding.com to enter to win the next sweepstakes from Performance Remodeling. Uh, yeah, Chris, you being the fellow golfer you are, uh, it's crazy how in our great state of Michigan, one minute it's March and we're anxiously awaiting the start of the season, and then next thing you know, it's late October and things are coming to a close. Well, by and large, get a chance to get the sticks out, perhaps for the last time. Nice temperatures this yeah. week. Yeah, listen, man, 70 I, tomorrow. I played Saturday morning. It was The real feel was 29 when we teed off, and then we had a brief minute oh, of boy. rain and wind and gray and then it got sunny and it was 45 for the last few holes it doesn't matter to me there's no such thing as bad weather there's only bad clothing but yeah, on- well i'll tell you i got a, a severe 55 degree rule so you sir oh boy getting out at 29 are a trooper and in case you're wondering chris yeah i'm trying to prolong the inevitable here uh unless you're a wolverine fan not a very good football weekend as it relates to Michigan State and, of course, the Honolulu Blue and Silver yesterday, huh? Yeah, let me give you, let's do it this way. Let me give you a golf analogy, and you tell me how far off I am with the Lions. Let's start there, okay? All right. I think we both agree. Now, I'm a very good player. I I compete a lot, and I am not a pro. I can shoot sub-70 rounds, and I had a five-year plan three years ago that I would consistently break 70, and I wanted to play in the mid-am, the U.S. mid-am. It's hard to do. And then I had a period of time where I shot a bunch of 67s and 68s, and I thought, okay, I'm there. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm there ahead of schedule. Ugh. Okay? And yeah, when everyone, I'm with you. Everyone started telling me, boy, you're good. Boy, you should play more things. Boy, you're phenomenal when you're focused. And then you know what I did? I strung together a bunch of 80s, and I threw a club in the water, and I, I stepped on one funny, which was really on purpose, and I realized I am not as good as I thought I was. The difference between a professional tour player that we see on TV and a really good amateur is the pro, the pro does it every time. 
even on his worst weekends or her worst weekends, they still do pretty darn good. Is that what just happened with our Lions? They are literally running this rebuild so far ahead of schedule that we got basically hoodwinked into thinking this team is Super Bowl ready, but they're not. Well, I mean, I, I don't know exactly how much we can put into one game. Look, the NFL is hard. Um, and that being said, and head coach Dan Campbell alluded to it, Chris, uh, the Lions had won four straight. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were playing superb football. And uh, there they are in Baltimore with the Ravens yesterday, a battle of division leaders. And uh, some th- uh, sometimes the best laid plans go completely awry. Now, that being said, uh, you had Lamar Jackson, certainly an accomplished National Football League quarterback, uh, who's had a hard time staying healthy of late. Uh, yesterday, he put together his best performance in quite some time. Absolutely. 21 of 27, 357 yards, three touchdowns. He finished, Chris, with a near-perfect uh, passer rating of 155.8, and he also ran one in for a touchdown. Meanwhile, uh, the Lions, who have done so well playing complementary football, in every aspect of the game, uh, couldn't find themselves offensively and defensively. Uh, they look like the Lions of old. They did. Um, finally get on the scoreboard in the fourth quarter, a 21-yard scamper from Jameer Gibbs. But understand, Chris, this is how bad it was. When Baltimore was up 28 nothing, they had a 16 nothing edge in first downs sure. and a 325-13 to advantage in in total yards. That's that's the number you need to know. You look at that and you say, oh, didn't go well. Now, as I said, Dan Campbell uh, made mention of the fact that maybe, maybe this is a blessing in disguise uh, because things had been going so well. And then something like this happens. Oh, and it was a beatdown at 38-6. to six. Uh you, you, you got to reassess. Yeah, I think the only, all of us who are really tried and true Lions fans who've been through this, have all these battle scars, we didn't expect to go now undefeated till the end of the season. But this wasn't a fight. This was, it, it looked like an abject mess. And so you and I, and, and before we flip over to Michigan, let's go shopping. Trade deadline's coming up. If you're the Lions GM, not what player, but what position do we go, we go find right now? Because I know what I think we need, but I'm not I'm not a football expert. But I can well, tell you I, what the eyeball test says. I think, uh, you know, first thing that comes to my mind uh, would be an edge rusher. Uh, now, Brad Holmes, Lions GM, uh, got a little draft capital. I don't know uh, how much he is uh, willing to part with. Um, you know, and I'm, I, I like where we are from a running back standpoint. Mm-hmm. I think Jameer Gibbs is going to be a solid, solid NFL mm-hmm. running back for years to come. David Montgomery. He'll be back. Uh, sadly, uh, you know, he's been banged up a little bit, uh, but he'll return. Right. Uh, you take a look at the wide receiver position. Uh, I'm comfortable with that. And I think when you look at it, what's going on defensively, um, we got to have got to have a more consistent pass rush and you would look what happened yesterday i mean there were a few times that they had gotten to lamar jackson unable to finish the deal yeah uh but i think uh and he's uh, an anomaly of a guy he's he scatters around the back of the box like nobody else let me let me tell you what i think we need you tell me if i'm dead wrong we have nobody back in the in the cornerback or safety position that's keeping up 
In these games where, where the opponents find an open receiver, sometimes those guys are so open, it's silly looking. Oh, yeah. Well, yesterday it was uh, very difficult to watch. Right, you're, Gardner you're Johnson's right. out until maybe the divisional series if we even get there. I don't understand that. I mean, when, when they send rushers, they seem to get penetration. But no one's back there watching these, these, these signature wide receivers. I just don't understand that. Why can't we get somebody? No, well, uh, he, you know, you touch on something important because, uh, you know, we thought Emmanuel Mosley was going to be able to contribute this year, and sadly, uh, that's not going to be the case. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm sure uh, Brad Holmes, Dan Campbell, uh, watching that game tape from yesterday, far, far too easy. Um, I think uh, the Ravens had over 500 yards of total offense. Yeah. Um, moving forward, you cannot consider yourself to be a contender. Uh, giving up uh, those numbers. So, uh, yeah. Listen, we'll I'm see. taking the kids Monday night, so I'm hoping that they they come back full of you know what and you know what vinegar and just put it on them because this, is, this shouldn't dissuade us from being as excited as we've been for a long time for this Lions team, but boy, that was hard to watch. I think you can count on it. Uh, the Raiders are a uh, beaten down team. Uh, they fall hard to a not very good Bears team, 30-12 to 12 yesterday. The, the rookie Tyson Badgett, uh, out of Shepard, by the way, that football hotbed, D2, yeah. Shepard, 162 yards, one touchdown, no picks. Raiders are 3-4, uh, and four, and they had to go with uh, the former Spartan. All of a sudden, Brian Horry, now 38 yeah. years old, threw a couple of picks. Pretty so cool. I Is think... It- uh, the Lions will be ready to go. Hey, listen, and before Danielle starts yelling at me through glass, is there any point in getting into Michigan, Michigan State, or was that just one of the best college teams in the country beating up on a team that is now in total disarray since Tucker's, uh, you know, ousting and so on and so forth? Well, the only thing I'll say, and, uh, you know, obviously, uh, you know, the, the background here, Chris, um, yeah, Michigan's good. You don't get to be number two in the nation by accident. Uh, that being said, uh, Harlan Barnett, interim head coach of the Spartans, uh, wanted to keep this team together. Now they've lost five straight. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, look, all they can do is plow ahead under very difficult circumstances. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They have a rough road ahead, and I don't think anybody has unrealistic expectations. The nice thing about being a Spartan, a Spartan family and having Spartan friends, is at the end of the, at the, end of the day, it's not necessarily who wins or loses. It's how cold was the beer and were the snacks warm when they came out of the oven. <laughs> and good Goals. on you for being a Spartans fan because we've had glorious moments and the basketball team's going to be a heck hey. of a good squad. It's what it is. Yeah, you're right. We've had a heck of a run. Uh, and, you know, look forward to basketball. Had uh, Tom Mizzo on the tailgate show Saturday. His team is absolutely loaded. Certainly looking forward to it. All right, Steve. I look forward to seeing you soon, hopefully at Monday Night Football in the WJR box with all the other lunatics. Right, Thanks, Chris. Michigan, for having me in today, filling in for Mr. Renwick. I'll be back tomorrow, despite the 72-degree golf weather in the afternoon. I will sacrifice that round to stay here and keep on talking about the important things on your mind. I'll see you soon.